0: You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I see no. Foster, Foster Care Nation, Nation. Listen, up. listen up. This is
1: Foster Care in Unparalleled Trinity.
0: Strength for the powerless, courage. the fearful, hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey with Jason and Noamanda again today, guys. Um, we'll get her back on here as a co-host again, but until then, um, she's just going to be taking care of the kids while I'm busy taking care of other stuff. So I get the easy job and I get to sit here and talk to cool people and she gets a hard job and she gets to go out there and talk to short, unreasonable little kids who um, who are like trying to. Deal with terrorists some days, so she's she's out there fighting the good fight. So if you hear in the background, it's just going to be in the noise of trying not to not to get taken hostage by the kids. So uh, today we have a guest with you. I have Stephen Snook here with us. I heard Stephen Snook on another podcast recently telling his story. Um, it was actually on a podcast about spirituality and uh, people's journey with 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 Christ and. And I heard the story and I heard him mention that he was on in uh, in the foster system as a young kid and, and had a lot of stuff, had a story to tell. And then um, I realized that he had just emailed me and I went, wow. Okay. What a coincidence. Maybe, maybe not coincidence. I don't know. But Steven, how are you doing today, man? Brother, I'm awesome. How are you? Oh man, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. First off, um, I ask people all the time. I hear an accent. That does not sound like you're necessarily from, say, New York City. So, tell me where you're from.
1: Well, I'm from central Illinois. Okay. Uh, but, but I spent the last, oh, I don't know. I spent I spent about a decade down in Florida. So, I did move around a little bit.
0: Okay. Okay. I thought I heard a little bit of south in there somewhere, but I couldn't quite. I grew up for a couple of years in Tennessee. I can usually spot a Tennessee accent pretty quick. and. <laughs> And sometimes I can pull Kentucky out and, and some different, some different sounds, but I'm, uh, I'm always interested in the accents that we all end up with. Cause I mean, obviously I didn't get an accent being in the Midwest where we, we're the only people who don't speak with an accent. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, when, when I did uh, do podcasts from somebody that's from far down South, like a, a buddy down in Georgia, I had to clarify that. Yes, I'm a Yankee, but I was born in Virginia but but he said it didn't really qualify me as being a Southerner he kind of gave me that oh you're on you were on the border there but
0: <laughs> <laughs> i hear you i hear you i believe that Missouri was also on the Mason-Dixon line so i don't i think we're we're in that that zone that does not get claimed by either side so that's all right that's all right so how are you doing man uh, yeah, i know you uh you, you i found you because you were in foster care originally when you were a little kid um so I mean, let's just kind of jump into it. What what put you into brought you into foster care and what that journey looked like for you?
1: Sure. I was born in 1976 in Hampton, Virginia. And when my mother had me, she was 15 years old. And I already had a brother that was a year and five months older than me. So here was a young mother. Uh, had her first child at 13, had me when she was 15 and just, there was no man around and she was just extremely poor. And, um, she relayed the story of the early years of my life to me when I, when I was older, when I got into my twenties and she explained to me how the situation was. I mean, we, we were so poor, it was like no shoes poor. And she said that uh, back then, you know, the situation was a little bit different when it came to, uh. Department of Child Services and things like that. And um, in her young mind, she felt like the best thing she could do for my brother and myself was to just set us by the road and call the cops to come and get us. And that's kind of how that journey happened. That's how I ended up in foster care.
0: Oh, man, that's that's one of those ones that you, you, you don't hear those stories very often, you know. Um, so Do you remember? I know you were fairly young. Do you remember being in foster care at all?
1: You know, I don't. It's kind of interesting. Um, I was eventually taken out of foster care when I was probably about two and a half years old. But I do remember the very first memory that I have in my life. It's kind of an interesting story um, because I had a friend that was, was asking me about five years ago to just write down the story of my life. And I did not want to do that because at the time I was busy just doing so many other things to try to help so many other men. I was about halfway into uh, a 377-day stint in solitary confinement where I was able to minister to other men. So I'm probably jumping around quite a bit here for your audience who doesn't know me. But but I, wanted, I want to take this somewhere to my first memory into the foster care. So when I finally agreed with, with the letters that he was sending me, and he was in Florida and I was in solitary confinement in in a federal prison in Illinois. So I sit down and I started to write from the very first memory of my life. And the very first memory I was being taken from foster care to go live with my brother's father's sister in Illinois. And as they were driving me across the country, um, They were trying to engage me into some conversation. These were all strangers to me at the time, and they were trying to get me to say my ABCs. So the first memory of my life was sitting in the back of a car and just kind of trying to sing that little jingle of the ABCs. Now, when I got done with about those first five pages of the the book and I set them up on the shelf, um, I got a letter from my friend in Florida. And the man had known me for probably 16 years at that time. And he said, he said, listen, I don't know why the Lord is on me about this. I know you. I know your walk. I know how you've conducted yourself. The, the people that I've helped, you know, lead in Bible studies and just all just various different aspects of the Christian walk. He said, but but God is on me relentlessly about talking to you about the ABCs of faith. So it was just a confirmation about of Confirmation that I was on the right path by writing my book because I started with the ABCs and he was having dreams about writing me about the ABCs. And so, yeah, that's kind of where that starts right there. So, I I don't have an actual memory of being in that system. Um, But, you know, there's another episode that happens years later when I turn about eight years old. I go back from Illinois to visit my biological mother. And a couple shows up at her house and it was um, it was a, a different feeling. They didn't announce herself as, hey, we were the ones that took care of you, but they didn't belong there. They didn't fit into uh, the type of group of people that would be around my mother or her mother. And they had another little boy with them who was a little African-American boy. And these were two white people. So when I got older, I kind of put the pieces together of what that was. And they were, you know, loving on me. And it was you could tell that they missed me. You know what I mean? And I'd been gone out of their life for, I guess, six years, you know. So when I got older, I kind of put that little puzzle together and say, aha, you know, there they were.
0: Wow. Wow. What? a. (laughs) you know, because primarily in our family, we take care of younger kids. And, um, I I have full knowledge that most of the, most of the kids who come through our home, I I may never see again, may never have an opportunity to see. I mean, and and we have, we have some, we've had some stories and some connections that are, that are amazingly, you know, deep connections that we've had with young kids. And I mean, I've actually gotten email. Somebody said, quit saying this because it sounds weird. And I, it may sound weird, but the truth is, is right now if you if you look right here i've got i've got a little guy tattooed on my chest um he came out of the hospital he was actually born in the uh, in the prison hospital and he came to our house after that and we had him for his first year life and that was such a such a deep connection in our family i mean to this day now you don't get to to mention carl around here without sitting through a handful of stories because he was such an impactful connection for us and um to the point where even my son, who at the time I think was about 13, he would come home from school and say, where's the baby? I want to hold the baby like that. That's just who he was. He was a light in our home for a long time. And for that first year of his life where he lived with us, like he was, you know, we, we kind of thought that may end up going to be a permanent placement, but it, he ended up going back to some family. I have a couple of kids over here who are tattooed on me that, that were just those things, you know, those, those moments in life where, where you're just doing what you're supposed to be doing. God had a plan and he put it, he put it in place. And, and there's a good possibility. I'll never see any one of those kids again, because, you know, those kids went back to family placements where they, they found some healthy family attachments and they were put there and, and they're in a good place now they're where they should be. But, you know, it sure would be nice to be able to look back and and look or look out and know where they're at right now and and know that they're doing good and be able to, to, to know that, that side of their journey. But, but that's not for us because because we don't get to see those kids anymore. And, and our job was just to take care of them during a short time in their life. And, you know, I'll say God has his plans and I keep telling him what mine are. And he just keeps laughing.
1: Yeah, no, that I mean, that's awesome, man. I'm glad that they're in good places now uh, because the way that my life turned out would by most people's assessment be considered an absolute tragedy. Now, had I stayed in the foster care uh, with if, had I stayed in the foster care system with the family that I that I was with, I'm sure my life would have been totally different. I probably would have went to, without exaggerating, I could have probably went to Harvard or some Ivy League school or some prestigious uh, private college uh, like the one that I'm kind of connected with now here at Bradley University here in Illinois. Um, And the reason I say that is because when I turned about eight or nine years old, they, they gave me a series of tests in school and they realized that, you know, this kid was very smart. So they put me into a special school and I started going to a special program where I learned how to play chess. So when I was 13 years old, I won the state of Illinois freshman, sophomore chess championship, but, and this is a huge, but from the time of seven, you know, on, I had a horrible life. I mean, I was abused in every type of way that, you know, a child gets abused. I mean, my aunt, who took care of my brother and myself, God bless her. She did the best she could. You know what I mean? But she she was uneducated. She was a waitress. Uh, she And she married very violent men. And one of the guys that she married uh, was a boxer in the military. And he just taught my brother and myself how to be monsters now at the same time you had a separate family member that was coming over and sexually abusing me so now you have just this this whirlwind of of psychological tragedy where you have a child that's not living with their mother i never called my aunt mom i just called her aunt marcia and then you have you know situation where you come home from school you're living in extreme poverty and uh You know, the the guy that's in your house is an absolute maniac. He may shoot a gun off in the house, which he did on occasion. So and then you're also getting abused from the other direction from a distant family member. So, you know, it doesn't matter how much talent that a kid has in that situation. My theory on this um, is that you can grow up in extreme poverty and in a very bad neighborhood in the hood. And you can come up out of that, but you can't come up out of that. If you're growing up in that extremely bad neighborhood in extreme poverty and you're going home and you're getting abused at home because now you're being hit from both sides and there's no escape for you. There's no rest for your weariness and there's just no outlet for that. Normally, it leads to drug abuse, some type of mental health issues that lead to suicide or like in my instance, I ended up going to federal prison for 19 years for a nonviolent drug crime. You know, but it wasn't because it was the first time I got in trouble and I have some type of story like that, man. By the time I was fifteen, I headed down that path of selling drugs. You know, I mean, I was tired of the poverty, I was tired of the abuse, and I just went that way with my life.
0: Yeah. Now you said you went to stay with your Aunt Marcia. Was that like an a uh, like an official foster type thing or a kinship placement or adoption? What was that?
1: What what ended up happening? She ended up getting custody of my brother and myself um, just a you know, it was one of those situations where, um, you know, the foster care people weren't involved in that. There wasn't somebody from the state that would come by and check on us and see how we were doing. So even though I started in that in Virginia, uh, by the time that I came to Illinois and she was able to get custody of us, I, you know, there was never any, uh, involvement like that from any government agency perspectives.
0: Okay. So it sounds like you, you really had a, uh, you know you were you were placed where they could put you and that would have been probably in 1980 something and i remember 1980 something because we were born pretty close to the same year and so uh they they weren't really the foster system was not as as developed as it is now for sure and uh yeah
1: no absolutely not but you know there's some things that i reflect on when i look at how my life has evolved over these 46 years my birthday's Monday. So I'll be 46 on Monday. And, you know, there's the Bible says that that God has a plan from you from the time before you were born. But we understand that sometimes the circumstances in our life don't allow for that plan to develop unless there's some type of intervention there. Like you said, in your instance, where you're able to take those babies out of the hospital that were born in prison or their mother walks away from the hospital, whatever the case may be. Um, in my instance, that type of intervention was always there, but I just never recognized it. Um, it didn't happen until I was in my, uh, mid twenties. Did I, you know, give my life to the Lord. And then that's when, you know, the lightning bolt, the thunder hit. I had my, my just huge, like, you know, coming to Jesus moment. That was just incredible. Um, you know, and it wasn't because I went to prison and I was scared or, you know, any, or because I was, or there's anything wrong with me. I'm not, I'm not hot. I wasn't a rat. I'm not a chomo. None of those type of things. I had already been to prison. You know what I mean? I was a certified gangster, you know, guys knew me, um, you know, as being a gangster and a leader of a massive, you know, drug crew. You know what I mean? My drug case was not small. I got caught with six kilos of cocaine. So, um, But, you know, you know, after I got born again and I really got into the Bible and I started to get a little bit closer to the Lord, I could reflect on my life and and kind of just get flushed out of my system. The bitterness, the misunderstanding, the uh, the hate, the anger, all those things that were in me, that process began, you know what I mean? And I was able to get get healed through that.
0: So I, I got to ask, because it's on my Google history now, I already searched it because I was curious when I heard your story on, on the Real Men Connect podcast. Um, What is the street value of of six kilos of Coke?
1: Well, I mean, if you ask the government, they're going to put that value at, you know, a million dollars or some ridiculous number. Maybe they put it at two million because they they would slice it down and say, okay, each grams really worth a hundred dollars a gram and they would break it down like that. But honestly, at that time I was paying about 20,000 a key. Uh, sometimes I could get them for you know, a little bit less and then I would just sell them wholesale. I mean, by the time I got arrested, I didn't even own a pair of scales. I would just, I'd been in the drug business so long, uh, bro, just to be honest with you from growing up in it from 15 years old that I didn't need a pair of scales. Now, I know that that sounds bananas, but about eight years after I'd been in federal prison, I was telling some other drug dealers that that were in federal prison with me. I was like, bro, I've been in this so long since I was such a young kid that I can weigh grams just with my hand, not like one gram, but like 500, 400. Right? So I'm walking across the, the prison yard one day and one of the guys says, hey, let's, let's duck into this library real quick. I said, okay, yeah, let's do that. So we jump into the library. It was a setup. They already had a plastic bag full of metal shavings in the library because there was a scale in the library where you weigh your mail if you're going to mail out some mail or some packages. Maybe you're working on leather craft or something like that. So it was a setup. They had this all planned because I'd been running my mouth. And the guy said, here, check this out. So now I've been in prison at this time eight years. I took the baggie with the metal shavings in my hand held it in my hand, handed it back to him and said, brother, that's 93 grams, somewhere between 93 and 94. It was like 93 and a half on the scale. Eight years <laughs> later, though, you know what I mean? Like I was that type of dude, you know, which makes it, it just makes it even more miraculous, man, what the Lord did with me. You know what I mean? And I'm just thankful for that. You know what I mean? That's that's why It's so important to me. It can never, ever stop for me that every breath that I have in this body, as long as I'm on the earth, is going to be used to help other people. I mean, if it's helping, you know, the book that I wrote while I was in solitary confinement, brother, I sat down and grinded that book out. All you could get back there was a pen about three inches long. I was writing that book on scrap paper and three inch pen. And I sit there and wrote page after page after page all the way from my very first memory on in the understanding that one day the pages in that book are going to be able to help some young abuse victim or some young person that's that's got into drugs for whatever reason and it's already happening. I'm not even finished with the book yet I, I you know I'm on you know shoestring budget you know I've only been out of federal prison now for nine months so and I'm trying to create my well actually I have created a business and it's just getting started as a startup. But just the chapters that I've let other people read have been so impactful already. Um, And I'll give an example as to why right here, because this to me, this was shocking and it probably shouldn't have been. Once I was released from federal prison, I joined a men's group and that meets in the basement of a church here, and there's probably anywhere between 40 or 50 men that, sh- that show up there on Thursday nights. These are men that are pillars in the community. Some of them are retired engineers. Um, you know. Some of them own restaurants or, or physical therapists or whatever they may be doing. They don't have the background that I have, but they accepted me, and I kind of explained to them who I was and what I was doing with my life, and they welcomed me there. They're all Christian men after being in there for about three or four months, and of course I tell them supernatural stories and about seeing guys get born again and their lives radically changing in prison. I spoke up one day and I said, I got a question because it was, you know, whatever they were talking about, it was just, it wasn't making much progress. Guys have problems. That's how life is. I said, I have a question. How many men in this room right now were sexually abused as a child? And I throw my hand up my own hand. Now, they believe that I'm the toughest guy in the room, but de facto, just because I did 20 years in prison and the hands start popping up, brother, the hands start popping up. You know what I mean? And then guys start talking to are like, you know what, man, this is crazy because we've been going to this church for 15 or 20 years. We've never talked about something like this. I said, well, don't you think it's time we get, we talk about this, man, and kind of sort this out. Don't you think this is something that might be important that you might want to talk to your wife about? Maybe this has some issues because guys are constantly bringing their problems to the table there about marital problems or problems with their their own children or whatever the case may be. So, you know, there's a thing, there's a stigma that happens with men, men's men, where if that type of of abuse doesn't get uh, revealed and brought to the light when you're very young, as you get older, you just kind of bury it and you stuff it down. You know, so a lot of the guys that I'm encountering now that I end up trying to help, they've got some type of mental health issue or they're they're recovering from being just a hardcore, hardcore drug addict where they were jamming uh, drugs into their veins with needles, even though they knew that the type of drug that was going around the city at that time was killing people. So they're, essentially they're borderline suicidal at that point. So, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that the book is going to be able to help a lot of people.
0: You know, I, I'm familiar with with some of the numbers there because um, I'm involved in a dads group, and and the number of guys that I've talked to there who who uh, it's one of the few places on on Facebook where you can go in and actually talk to people and hear them say helpful things and and, and throw out some real challenging stuff like childhood sexual abuse that they experience, and and they they feel comfortable discussing that there and i can't count the number of men in that group who've mentioned to me that they were abused as as kids sexually by i mean everything from one, one guy his his uh his uncle was a was a uh a, a priest a member of the clergy somewhere who who abused him throughout his his early childhood quite a bit and you know and it's just it's rampant it's everywhere and it's something we don't talk about we try to hide that and you know we we had one young guy stay with us for a while and I don't know. I'm, I, I have the ability to really read people well. And I know that this kid had been abused. I don't know who, I don't know any of the details of his story. And, and I know that this young guy had been abused and he never, never talked about it, never said a word about it. And that was one of those things that even, I think he was 15 at the time he was the only teenager we've ever taken in. And because um, most of the kids we take in are, are younger kids and he just didn't have a place to go. And they really, really needed a short term placement for him. And he never talked about it. And he's another one who's who probably end up being, you know, one of those guys who's afraid to ever admit what happened to him when he was younger. And that's one of the things that I, I hate to even talk about it, because the truth is, is that kids on foster care sometimes get abused. And sometimes some of the, the foster parents are horrible humans who should not be taking care of kids, let alone be taking care of, of foster kids, you know, kids who've been, you know, in, in bad situations. And it happens and i don't know what we do about it or how we how we help these people move past that into a, into a, into the next phase of life and begin to find some kind of recovery from that but that's that's a huge portion of our population
1: yeah and you know what brother when you when you talk about foster uh, care and i I've, I've just got to tell you man and i i want you to understand this is coming from my heart i have tremendous respect for you For your listeners that are in foster care, that that are are foster parents, that are taking care of children that that aren't their biological children. And I'm going to tell you why. Okay. And this is from being decades in prison and interviewing so many men and trying to help so many men that are so lost in the world that their life cycle is just a death cycle. It's just prison drugs, prison drugs, prison drugs. And they destroy everything they touch and they hurt every family member and they've burned every bridge and they can't really understand why. And I'm going to tell you, brother, this is, I, in my heart, I believe this is a fact about five months after I got out of federal prison, I was asked to give a guest lecture at Bradley university and they gave me the floor for two hours for a a classroom full of future uh, prosecutors, lawyers, and judges. Okay. The topic of the conversation that they wanted to touch on was violence in America, but I turned it into a QA. and I wanted them to have an opportunity to ask me any questions that they may want to ask, because it was obvious that I wasn't the average cat that's coming out of prison after 20 years. OK, one of the things that I explained to them when it, when it comes to solutions to some of the problems that we're having in America, especially right now. Is I I personally believe that programs like Big Brothers and Big Sisters, the Boys and Girls Clubs, those are fine. Okay, but that's at that bottom level. Okay. Because here's what happens. And this is what I explained to them. And when I when I was able to articulate it to them, they understood it and they all they were just in shock. I said, look, somebody comes in and he picks up little Johnny and he takes him to Dairy Queen and he buys him a hot dog and he gets him an ice cream cone. He goes to Walmart, buys him a baseball glove, and he plays catch with him. And that's awesome, bro. And then he takes him and he drops him off back at home. When he walks in the house, his mom's got a black eye. His dad's drunk and throws a beer bottle at him. What has happened? This is not right, bro. This is not good. And I understand the theory behind the big brothers, big sisters, stuff like that. I said, you, if people are serious about this, if our government is serious about this, like, whoa, we got this skyrocketing crime problem. Our youth is all growing up, lost mental health issues. They've got all these problems. Hey, Let's not take them out of there for a day. Let's not even take them out of there for a weekend. Let's start doing something like this. Let's start taking them out of there for three months. And here's kind of how I believe that idea was hatched in my brain. Okay. A lot of these suburban white kids that are, you know, just middle class kids, they get to go to a summer camp in the summer. Their parents pay, they send them off, they go to summer camp. Maybe it's Christian themed, maybe it's not, but they get a break. They get out there for a month. They're around some counselors and different people. Some of the guys that I was in prison with, bro, they've never been out of their neighborhood, let alone their city. They've never been to the outdoors. They've never had a mentor. I believe that that we should have programs in the government where they go into these inner cities and say, hey, check this out. Any kid in here that wants to go to summer camp can go and we will pay for it. And I believe that more parents would be receptive. Now you've got a youngster who's in a toxic environment at home where it's just absolute chaos. And you're able to take him out of there for two or three months. You're able to extract them from that environment for two or three months. You know what I mean? To get that slime off of him. So some of that stuff that he's getting from some of those men and women, those counselors, those people that, are, that want to love on him just because he's a human. Some of that stuff can get through and get in there. It can't get in there in one day or, or two days. You know what I mean? So that's why I have so much respect for people that are in foster care, because you're not just taking them out of there for five days. You're not taking them out of there for the summer, man. You're trying to take them out of there for their life to change the course of their life. You know what I mean? So I, I believe that I believe that every kid in America should have an opportunity, man. It, to get you know, especially in these neighborhoods, man, where it's just it's death, it's all death all night, brother. I heard they were shooting guns off at six o'clock in the morning right down the road from my house, and that's not uncommon. You know what I mean? It's just not uncommon. So you know, that's just a little theory. I, I didn't mean to go on a little a little rant right there, but I'm I'm pretty passionate about that one because I can only imagine what would have happened in my life or in my brother's life if if some people and and here's why because I found out later when I got older. That it was talked about, you know. My brother and I ended up being, you know, before we turned to crime, we were into sports, and we were just super athletic. A- and some of the coaches talked about, hey, maybe we could get them out of that environment they live in. What if they came and? But nobody actually acted on it. Nobody actually took us out of there. You know what I mean?
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> so many people have great ideas, but the ideas aren't aren't worth anything if they stay ideas and they don't. Nobody ever puts feet on them. And that's a, that's a big struggle because I, I do, I do a lot of work um, and <clears throat> my work takes me into St. Louis city into a lot of the rougher neighborhoods that we have. And, you know, on most people have heard of Ferguson, Missouri, and because that's where the whole thing started, what was it? The Mike Brown riots um, back when that all sure. first kicked off. And I'm going to tell you, Ferguson's actually a nice town. I don't care what anybody says. Um, Ferguson, what you saw on TV was like, you know, <clears throat> was like a half mile stretch of, of West Florence Avenue. Um, and that, that wasn't, that wasn't Ferguson folks down there. That was, that was a lot of the folks coming from, from other parts of the city, just trying to get what they could get and, and loot and steal. And, but there are parts of St. Louis city that, that we do a lot of work in that are, man, they're dangerous places to be. I mean, if you're there, you're there to, to, to buy some drugs or, you know, buying drugs or humans, one of the two. And, uh, or you live there. That's, that's the only reasons why you're there because, or you made a really wrong turn and you're trying to get out because it's just, that stuff exists and people live in places like that. And we um, talked to a thing. It was Justin and Alexis black and, and justice Justin told his story where, you know, they grew up in in random vacant houses and it was just, they would claim a house, I guess is be the closest to the right term. And that's where their family would live until, until something happened and they had to, they had to go find somewhere else. But, and that's where they grew up was just moving from house to house and blighted neighborhoods, trying, trying to just survive. And, we have this culture in America and we don't, we don't really seem to know that it exists. You know, it's, it flies under the radar and kids are, kids are being put through that. And is it any wonder that so many of those kids end up turning to a life of drugs and crime? And, you know, one of the questions I always wonder about, and I, if you have the answer to this, that, that's awesome. Cause we're going to solve like a lot of the nation's problems, but you know, <laughs> when, you get, <laughs> when you get to, to the people who, who fall into the drugs, who fall into to the stuff that. I mean, cause let's be honest, I've seen heroin and meth just steal souls and, oh, yeah. you know, I, I'm trying to figure out how can you even help people who are in that place? Is, is there a way to help somebody if they don't want it?
1: Oh, if they don't want it, uh, it's, it's extremely difficult. I can give you a few examples of that. I'll tell you what worked best in my life. Okay. Once I got myself sorted out, once I, Put in, you know, extreme effort because sometimes God does require some sacrifice. Yeah, our are salvations free. You know, Jesus paid the price for that. But if you're really trying to press into God and get everything that God has for you to give you the ability to help others, it requires a sacrifice. So for me, a lot of the huge breakthroughs in my life were extreme fasting. Okay. Fasting, long stretches of prayer, four or five hours a day of prayer, but fasting for weeks at a time sometimes. Okay. Because the men that I was trying to minister to had been through everything that you and I are talking about. And they looked like they have been through everything you and I are talking about their fate, their faces and necks are blasted out with tattoos, scars on their body, bullet holes, whatever. Okay. You can't take guys like that a, a gospel of Jesus that says, Hey, brother, Jesus loves you. You know, will you please read this Bible? It doesn't work, bro. They don't want to hear it. It's no good. They've heard it on every corner in America. Don't tell me that. Show me something. Okay. So one of the things that I would ask the Lord to do, please, Lord, reveal to me in a supernatural way, something that I can take to these men that will change their life or would be a catalyst for them to think about changing their life. And, you know, probably on the podcast that you listened to that I was on, you know, one of the things that he would do. So I'll take you to examples of guys that didn't want help or weren't even seeking out help. Their life was just going to be prison. That's what it was going to be. You know, one of those guys was a Latin king gangbanger. I just happened to have had a dream the night before where the Lord Lord gave me a name. I wrote it down on a piece of paper and I gave it to my neighbor the next day that man walked into our unit of solitary confinement in a prison that used to be a supermax prison. I don't know this man. My neighbor doesn't know this man. He walks down to the end of the hall. I yell at him and I said, Hey, you know, if you don't mind me asking, what's your name? He gives me his prison gang nickname. I said, no, brother. I said, I'm a Christian. I'm a real one. You know, I've been down here praying and fasting for months and months and months. God gave me a name last night. Would you please tell me your name? And he told me his name is Fernando. And, you know, my neighbor, he, my neighbor lost his lost his self because that was the name that was on the paper. So here's a guy that wasn't seeking God, but God was looking for him. And, you know, that man ended up getting born again back there. He ended up getting saved from that, from God reaching out there. So there was an instance, you know, where a guy wasn't necessarily wanting help. If a guy does want help, or a young man, like a like let's say a teenager that's had just a horrible life. Maybe somebody got him in the foster home at about seven or eight years old after he's already had the crap kicked out of him his whole life. His mom was a prostitute, so he's seen her used every type of way. So he's got tons of problems. Okay, you can send him to a psychiatrist, he can start going to counseling and stuff like that. That's got, you know, that's got some credence to it, yes. But sometimes, and again, I go back to the stuff that I wrote down. If, they, if there is a relatable story there that they can relate to, sometimes that opens the door a little bit. If they can get a relatable story from somebody else that's been through something similar, like the stuff that I told you I wrote in my book, that helps a lot. Another thing that I was able to use that really helped men is I could present the gospel of Jesus to them, not as something where you go to the cross and get saved, And then your walk with God is going to church and singing songs and reading the Bible. That's part of it. But if I could present to them, listen, this is how it is. You go to the cross to get saved, but Jesus is not there. He's on the right hand of the Father, and he sent the Holy Spirit back down. And your walk in Christianity should be a supernatural walk when they talk about the Christian faith, the relationship with the Lord, you should be hearing from the Holy Spirit almost every day. You should be praying and and asking the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you. And you should be having supernatural things happen in your life. And then they would just be like, well, that's incredible. Are you sure? You know what I mean? How do you know? And I'd say, well, first of all, I've been living it for 15 years and I can tell you stories that put, put goosebumps on everybody's body, but I could use Check this out now back to relatable, relatable stories, relatable uh, uh, information I would use instead of a Bible as a ministry tool, I would use powerful Christian books from men that had ministries with abused children. An example, one of my favorite ministry tools in prison was The Cross and the Switchblade by David Wilkerson. He went to New York. He started dealing with those kids up there. They were coming out of that environment. They were all gangbangers out of New York. And he went over there and he took them something different than what they'd have. And that's where you got the whole story about Nikki Cruz, who was one of the kids from out there. And it just it ballooned into something now that is worldwide. That's called Teen Challenge, which everybody knows about. But if David Wilkerson would have took them something out there like a bunch of Bibles or pamphlets said, hey, guys, read these. You know what would have happened? Nothing. You know what I mean? Nothing would have happened. So, again, I think it comes back to it's a combination. It's relatable stories. Hey, listen, I've been there. I've been through that. This is what happened. You know, when I was a kid brother and I was in school and they realized, okay, there's something going on here. This young man's been through something. Now remember my brother's a year and five months older than me. When I was 12 and he was 14, we were out in the yard playing catch one day. And he just said, man, I'm leaving. And he just ran away. I mean, he just couldn't deal with it anymore. And that happens to who knows how many kids do that. You know what I mean? And end up being in that, that, that uh, sex trafficking and all those and you know just strung out on drugs and just a horrible lot. So the counselors that they would try to give me through the school system that would try to talk to me, I you know I, I wasn't so young and naive that I couldn't just say, well, can you please tell me what you've been through in your life? You know what I mean? Because I'm looking up on your board here, like one lady, and you graduated from Syracuse University, and you know you've done so. I mean, did you have have you 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 been through some of this? No no brother they didn't (laughs) and i think maybe maybe that's why it worked in uh what was the movie goodwill hunting maybe why matt that broke through with matt damon you know what i mean and then you got you know robin williams had been through that stuff that's not the story of my life though bro i didn't i didn't drive off with the girl and get the good job i went to federal prison for 20 years mine's the the story that really happens most of the time actually
0: oh yeah yeah that's uh, unfortunately that's you know, the, the stats I've heard that for a kid who ages out of foster care, who does not have a family, the kids who have spent a lot of time and years being abused, the chances of them going to prison are terrifyingly high. I forget the actual numbers, but it's, it's a ridiculously high number, you know, kids who are, who just don't have the, ever have that grounding and anything positive in their life. And they don't have the family. They, you know, my, my wife has an interesting story and she's told it on here before, you know, she was She lived in a home that was a drug house and she should have been in foster care as a kid, but she was, she was never, you know, brought into the system. And so, you know, her view of, of of the way that, you know, things like she did not have a a dad in her life, her, her, her biological, at least not a biological father. He, uh, he bounced at a very young age and the couple memories she has of meeting him were incredibly negative. You know, um, he, he was, he was physically abusive the few times that she saw him and he was. He was addicted to to alcohol and I don't know about drugs or whatnot. I don't know his story very well at all. Um, but but you know, that totally warped her her view of of what a father looks like. And that that made some of our own our own stuff really challenging when we first got together because she really had no idea what, what a dad was supposed to be. And I was fortunately raised, my, my dad was a police officer and and uh he had his his faults for sure, as we all do, but but as the dad goes, he's a guy who's his dad passed away when he was very young. He had a lot of negative um, men in his life. But as dads go, like he, he was one of those guys who went through some hard stuff and said, I will never do this to my kids. And he did the best he could to be to be a great dad. And so I had a good model for me. And like that, that's been in touch that the story of our relationship is he's like, yeah, I never knew this was even possible. You know, I never knew like this was a thing. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's caused her to even have, have her own problems, understanding any kind of, any kind of a faith journey, that kind of stuff, because dads can be really bad, really dangerous people in in her life lived experience. And so, you know, as, as a, a dad, who's, who's a foster dad as well, I know that the job we have is to create a new paradigm in the minds of kids who, who don't see that. And man, that's, that's a pretty big, uh, that's a pretty big thing to be put on you as, as a man, cause, cause the truth is, is I'm also a broken man, just like everybody else is, right. I've got my own, my own bucket of faults and traumas and problems and stuff. And I do great with some things and horrible with some others. And, and I have a job, you know, my job is to present that other side of life to kids who don't get to see it in their, in their biological home. And it's a serious challenge for me to, to walk through all the time because that's, that's what I have to do on the daily.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, I tell you, that's awesome, man. That's, that's it's just so honorable, you know. I can't say enough about uh, what you guys are doing, man, and, and people that do the stuff that just like what you guys are doing. It's it's extremely honorable, you know. And um, you know, maybe maybe your wife's story is a little bit more relatable. I don't know at what age she would be willing to even talk to the kids about how her life was, but maybe when they get to a certain age, and she's able to kind of say, "Hey, you know, <laughs> mine was a little rough too." you know with that type of relatable story um i think that could be effective
0: yeah and that's something we have talked with you know with some of the kids because you know the very first foster kids we ever had it ended up coming to stay with us full time um let's see well the oldest of the other two was a sibling set of two that came to us very first and we ended up adopting them and he is there was a brother and sister he is uh 17 now and he's heard a lot of those stories and uh you know he he's a young man who's who's trying to find his his own way and he's been through some significant struggles and we've been through some significant struggles but um it, it looks like he he may be kind of kind of on the right road now so we have some hope there we have some hope and that's just so many young kids never get that hope and so stories like your all, yours always like that that gives me hope that even a kid who who fell off into the wrong side of things right uh, who who went to the to the drug world who ended up doing things that got you sent to prison for a good long time, its it can turn your life completely around.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if you can get people hungry, um, and I don't really know exactly how you can get kids that way, but you could certainly get teenagers that way. If you can get them hungry and desperate for a, a shift, a mindset shift, first they have to understand that something like that's necessary. And most of the time they can see that because they, they, they do understand their behaviors out of whack. So you, you know, they understand that, that it's needed. And then you, you know, present a way, you know, get through that desperation and through that hunger and say, listen, this, this particular path right here, this way right here, I don't know about other ways, bro. You know what I mean? I really don't, you know, I didn't do like uh, Twelve step or NA or any of those type of things. I, you know, maybe those things work for some people. I'm sure they do. That you know, because they're popping up everywhere. But what worked for me, I guarantee you, will work for everybody. You know what I mean? But it's not. It can't be like religious because kids, you know, nowadays they detest that. So I would start out any conversation by saying, "Listen, brother, I'm not even. I'm not here to talk to you about religion. You know what I mean? Let me just please tell you what happened in my life." how I've been able to hear from the Lord, how the Lord has been able to do, you know, amazing, miraculous, supernatural things just over and over and over because he cares so much about people that been through what you've been through. You know what I mean? He cares that much that he is willing to reach his light down inside of a dungeon that's inside of a prison and save a guy that looks like he climbed out of the pit of hell. You know what I mean? He cares that, you know what I mean? So, you know, that gets that gets people thinking, Okay, so you're you're telling me that I do need to change. Yes, I agree with that. You're telling me that there is a remedy for that. Yes, that's what I'm telling you. Okay, maybe I don't agree with that. Okay, I understand. But please let me explain it to you and then let me show you how to get there. You know what I mean? So that was one of the big ways that was really effective, you know, with the stuff that I was doing in prison, because when I could convince somebody that there was a remedy and that it wasn't like a a 12 step program or something like that, that the remedy was actually God, you know what I mean? Going, going in there and getting with Jesus and just diving in and expecting to receive something from God. If I could give them that as a remedy and get them hungry enough where they would start fasting. Oh man, forget about it, bro. Forget about it. I mean, I don't know if you had a chance to see the uh, news um, uh, interview that they did with me before Thanksgiving. But, you know, I couldn't tell you enough how radical the changes would be then because now not only are they reading books like the cross and the switchblade, but they're also reading books by like, you know, Smith Wigglesworth and John G Lake. I don't know if you're familiar with these people, but they're also reading a little bit of like the Bible and, and, you know, they're, they're getting hungry and hunger for God. And then they'll skip a meal and then maybe they'll skip two or three meals. Then the next thing, you know, they're on fire. Now it's time for a radical change. And then you can start to say, "Okay, look, now you see that there's something there. And, you know, let's now let's work on all the other stuff because it all doesn't happen instantly. You know what I mean? It takes time and it takes it takes a plan and a mapped out plan for that. Uh, But it is possible. You know, I saw it happen many times. And then those broken men, those previously extremely broken men from the horrible childhoods and, and the way that they were raised, were restored and then they took that same fire with them and they carried that to other prisons throughout the United States.
0: Yeah, that, that's amazing, man. That's amazing. The way that your story has spread. So you you have come in into a different phase of life. And I'm going to tell you as, as a, uh, as a guy who who does some stuff with media, you know, podcast, basically stuff, you know, I, I am not what you would call a business owner. I am what you would call a guy who has a, a little bit of an expensive hobby because I am not only the uh, the the host and, and the uh, the producer and the guy who does all the editing and all that stuff, I, I'm also uh, I'm also the financier of this podcast. Because <laughs> I haven't yet figured out how to how to go make Joe Rogan money on, on this podcast, nor do I expect to it anytime soon. But um, but yeah, I, I'm I have not yet figured. I'm not an entrepreneur type guy, but I know you said you you have you're nine months out of out of prison and you've started your own business. So can you tell me what you got going on with that?
1: Yeah, I think I, well, first I got, let me just tell a quick story unless we're running super long. I've just got to tell you this, brother. I've just, I, I, I go into your mind real quick and let me ask you something. Have you ever seen it? It's a, it's like a picture and on this picture, there's two sets of footprints walking in the sand and a guy is having a conversation with Jesus after death. And he's asking the Lord, he said, why during those really hard times of my life, is there only one set of footprints in the sand? You know, where were you? And Jesus told him, he said, man, it was at those moments that I was carrying you. Okay. That verse right there, that particular story and different little verses like that, that I had seen just a handful of times in my life were comforting to me when I was 40 years old in the darkest places that any man could be, you know? So in 2020, I had a dream from God about an idea. And in the dream, he showed me some scriptures on a wall, rotating, inspirational scriptures out of the Bible, same stuff that everybody likes to pull up on their phone sometimes and look at. And I told him I couldn't understand it. You know, I'd never seen a smartphone, uh, Facebook, uh, TikTok, Twitter, none of that had been invented when I went to prison. And he gave me a dream the very next night and he said, this is how it's going to work. And so essentially he just let me know, man, this is what I want you to do. You know what I mean? So I kept it in my heart. I kept it to myself. And two years later when I got out, with no knowledge, you know, uh, just, you know, began on this journey and it has been amazing. And the goal of what I'm trying to do and, and what he's done and what, what is, is right now, what you see is scripture frames. And it is the first digital scripture frame. And basically what it does is they're just decorative, decorative frames that are preloaded with inspirational scriptures. And you can set them on your desk or you could, set, you know, stand them up on a shelf or on a desk or you can hang them on the wall. Like I said, there's three different sizes. They have a wooden frame. They're very decorative. And every day they'll put up a new inspirational scripture. Or if you want them to rotate once an hour, you can do that, too. But the beautiful thing about it, and of course, I believe God gave this to me also because he knew that I wasn't going to have any idea about technology, is you just got to plug them in. You plug them in and they just play, man. You don't have to have Wi-Fi. You don't have to have internet. You never know, you know what I mean? Who's going to walk by your desk? Who's going to walk through your house? You know, when your kid's going to be having a dark moment and that perfect scripture that he needs for that day is the one that's up there that day. You know what I mean? So that's what I'm doing, brother. And um, the, the feedback has just been, it's been incredible to say the least. It's awesome. You know, absolutely awesome. So I've got I've got that happening right now, you know, and we'll have those uh, out before Christmas. Awesome. Well, how, how, where can people find that at? They would go to my website, Jesus Speaks LLC, which is, stands for Life, Liberty, and Christianity. Um, so JesusSpeaksLLC.com. I've got a couple links on there to a couple of the, the podcast interviews I've been on. Uh, news articles, uh, different little videos that they've shot about stuff that God's doing. And of course, people can go on there and they can buy the scripture frames. I can get them to them before Christmas right now. And it's awesome because at the same time that they're doing that, they're helping, you know, to produce that relatable story for former drug addicts or abuse victims, um, because I have the original manuscripts of that book that I wrote in solitary confinement that tells the story of my life and the abuse and everything that I went through. And I'm in the process of editing that. So there's a way there through the website where they can help also with that, but it's not like a donation. I'm not saying, Hey, give me some money. It's Hey, you can, you know, help out for the creation of the book for the editing, for the formatting by, by joining to the Substack. I don't know if people are familiar with Substack, but it's, it's a, it's a way that you can help, a creator to finish their project. You know what I mean? And by doing that, I would supply them with, you know, chapter after chapter, after chapter of the book, as I get them edited, uh, you know, pictures from prison um, you know, information that other people wouldn't be able to get. So it just all that stuff's on the website. It, It explains it a lot better than the way that I do. And the way that I've, you know, a lot of these ideas that you're hearing about, you know, how the business is running, obviously I had no idea how to run a business. Okay. I didn't know how to set up, uh, you know, right. Or have a book edited or formatted or how to even really develop this product other than the idea that I had in the dream from God. But he put me with the right people here um, where I work at in Peoria. It's called the Peoria next innovation center. It's connected to Bradley university. So I'm getting some good help that way, man. And as many people that want to join the journey, you know what I mean to be, become part of something that's bigger because my mission brother is to get I want to get this book into as many hands as possible I don't care if it's people in jail I don't care if it's people in drug rehab I don't care if it, I would love it to go to kids 12 13 14 years old hey check this out man check this out here's somebody that went through something similar to what you've been through and he went all the way through there and he didn't he didn't survive it as a kid and he went to prison for almost all of his life but it's not over, you know what I mean, and it's not over for you. And hopefully, I can I can save some of them in this way. Only one can save, and that's Jesus. But through my story, I can allow them to shave on my face, so all those painful years and all that separation from the world, they don't have to experience that. You know what I mean? They, there's a lot of stuff in there that I know can help a lot of people because we're seeing it now. You know, just the little snippets that we're releasing, we're just seeing it's helping people, and the scripture frames are just they're doing what they're doing, bro. You know what I mean? They're taking off like a rocket ship. Hopefully I'll still have, you know, plenty left for Christmas. I think we have about 700 left right now and they're just, they're going.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, it's, it's always inspirational to hear somebody who's, who's been through the stuff who's been through, through the hard stuff in real life and has found their way to, you know, turned turn that around and made something out of their life. That's worth living because so many people in this life live a life that's not worth living and so you know hearing a guy who's been there done that and chose to live a life worth living that that's amazing so I appreciate you you coming on here and telling your story today man that's 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 awesome
1: brother I appreciate I appreciate the opportunity but I really like I said man I appreciate you um, any of your listeners out there that are doing what you and your wife are doing that are taking these uh, children in I mean that's just Come on, bro. I mean, that's at the top of the list, man. That is huge right there. That's like the backbone of a society. You know what I mean? To take care of children that can't, they can't take care of their I mean, you, you don't even know the lives that you're changing by what all you guys are doing. You really, really, the impact of that's going to be felt from generation to generation to generation on through the, through all their lineage. So, you know, my hat's off to all you guys.
0: Yeah, hey, I appreciate it. We're just trying to do what, what I think we were put here to do, and and that's that's my job, so so I'll keep on doing what I'm supposed to do.
1: Awesome, brother. Awesome. God bless you guys, for real.
0: Okay, Foster Care Nation, thank you for listening to Stephen's story. Now take his knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at Jason at com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash foster care UJ. Don't forget, we have an account at buy me a coffee. It's like a virtual tip jar where you can help us fund our mission for as little, as much as you want. It's at buymeacoffee.com slash foster care. The links to everything are in the show notes in your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always,
1: you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. so oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks.
0: Unparalleled (laughs) Studios.